You know, I remember one time in Tallahassee, somebody called and, you know, to their child, he's a child psychiatrist. So a lot of times he's dealing with the parents of the children that he's taking care of. And he's in the hospital and the parent call and the parent is like, I would like to speak to someone else. They put him, they gave it the phone to the nurse and she said, is that a black doctor? Welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America, an immigrant human library, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. Listen in as we add another story to our immigrant human library. But that was the green card. Like once the green card came in, now we could look at all the jobs. Before the green card, we had to look at the only options were the jobs that were were would sponsor a, a visa. And those tend to be in places that people don't want to live, like Tallahassee. <laughs> you know, so they will tend to be in more remote locations or more rural locations because those places are harder to recruit. And same thing for like teachers, right? Like teachers may have, if you if you're a teacher and you come to the US and you want to teach, it is likely that the places or the schools that are willing to file for international teachers are either in remote locations or they're in schools that nobody wants to work in because of um, the location, the community, what's the crime, all the things that are happening in the environment. And because it's hard to recruit, they look then then they become willing to look outside, right? Outside of the US, right? So that's also something to kind of be mindful of. But I think of it this way as well. It's only for a time. Right. Our Tallahassee stint, even though I was like, who is Tallahassee? <laughs> How do you spell Tallahassee? Was only two years. Right. And sometimes, you know, going through just getting your foot in the door to wherever is willing to take you. And, you know, we say in Trinidad, ban your belly, <laughs> ban your belly for two years. Right. Ban your belly for three years. So until they file for your green card. And in that time, you just make it work. You just make it work. You make it work. You make it work. And once you get your green card, now the sky is the limit as to you can actually pick where you want to live, where you want to work. You can look at the map of the USA now and be like, okay, I want to live in Atlanta. or I want to live in Florida. or I want to live in Texas. And now you have the options because you're no longer limited by only those companies that want to file for you, you know? And yes. so so that was us. That was our kind of coming to Atlanta story was we picked Atlanta, you know, like we picked Atlanta because now we had a green card and we didn't have to focus solely on who is willing to sponsor, who is willing to sponsor our visa. And last year, once you have your green card for five years, you can apply for citizenship. So last year I got my citizenship and I was able to vote for the first time. And it was so exciting. The first time in my life, actually, I was able to vote. But that took almost 20 years to get to U.S. citizenship. Wow, what a journey. But there's so much there that you're sharing in your experience and your journey that, that I think people will find so helpful about how this actually plays out when you come over. Because I think a lot of people take the first step and they say they want to study. But then when they get here, they're like, you know, I really like it. And I want to try to see if life I can make life here. But then the steps to getting to 
permanent residency, legal permanent residency can be so challenging. And so I say the U.S. is one option. So don't necessarily limit yourself to coming to the United States because there are other countries that they might have different rules that might be like Canada might be an easier option, for example, for you. So don't necessarily just limit yourself to the U.S. And I think a lot of people kind of pigeonhole themselves into just the U.S., the U.S., but there's U.K., there's Canada, there's other countries in the East and other places too in Europe that you could go and find other opportunities. So, you know, just look at what works best for you and if you do come here and you find that you can't find an employer to apply for you for the next step, then also you, you can look at other places, even after you've gotten to the U.S. to see what door might open for you. That might be part of your journey, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I see a lot of people being so stressed out, really, when they're in the in between, yeah. you know? so stressed out trying to make it work in the U.S., well, kind of zoom out and broaden your perspective a little bit and you might find other opportunities because it can be such a stressful experience. You're right, because I had a friend who I went to school with in Benedict and then she did her master's in England, right? I had another, I know another Trinidadian girl, she did her, she went to Paris to do her undergrad. No, actually was to do her master's because she went to UWE, University of the West Indies first in Jamaica. And then she did her master's in Paris. And believe it or not, these European countries, the cost of tuition is significantly cheaper because it's subsidized. And so, you know, while I was looking, and again, if I had even known these other countries were options, because again, I didn't see anybody going to Europe for school. You know, I didn't see anybody, you know, going to Canada for school. And I think those countries are a lot easier. Canada is definitely more open in terms of it's not as the the hoops and loops that people have to jump through is not as much as compared to in America. And and the friend that I had that moved to 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 um, England, you know, she's still living there. Right. And so same for the person from Trinidad who went to, to Paris she then did her PhD in another location in France. And so she's still living in, in France. And so there's a lot of options globally that we generally don't know about because we don't see a lot of our people in our circle going to those places. But definitely there are other countries that are open. I knew of, of a couple of people who did their undergrad in Taiwan. And they found that because they, they were from St. Vincent and they went to the embassy, had the information, right? Like, so information is like hiding in these pockets of places, but the embassy is a good place to yes. look for information, believe it or not, right? Like we have, you know, in your country, it's not just the U.S. embassy that is there, right? There are other embassies that are in 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 your country as well. And in those countries, you, you can go to those countries' embassies and find information about how to live and how to work or how to go to school in those countries. Yes, and opportunities that might be available to you, such as um, scholarship, fellowships, and all mm-hmm. sorts of things. Right. So in my in my experience here, I've come across um, people just really making unfortunate decisions and putting their lives in 
you know, their reputation in jeopardy and things like that. But as you can see, there are so many legal ways to migrate to the U.S. or any other places. Like, do your research before you listen to somebody who wants, like, go underground, as they would say, or how else would you put it? Like, some outside of the formal legal process. Don't don't put yourself through that and, and kind of put a stamp on your reputation. There are so many ways to do that legally. Do your research. Library, online, go to the embassies, talk to people. You know, there's probably groups, our podcasts, like my that are online where people are sharing information about how they did it. So do your research. And uh, there are safe legal ways to migrate. You know, really consider those first before you put your life at jeopardy where you could be unsafe in anything that you do. You know, like I constantly, you know, come across people or you see it in the news where people like, you know, take to the seas or do other things. But there, there are legal ways to do it. So just... Word of caution to people, just do some research before you go the other side. Yeah. <laughs> go, yeah. go the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but what a journey. And I'm so pleased. And we literally just met recently in the Georgia area. And I'm so pleased to learn of your journey. And wow, wow, wow. And so, you know, I'm intrigued to get a bit about what your life experience was like in Trinidad. Give us a taste for Trini and, uh, you know, all the vibrancy of the country. I've ne- I've yet to make it to Carnival, but it's still on my oh, list. Wow. I tell you, I'm going to get my costume and I want to go to have some fun. So give us a sense for food fun things you did, you know, culture, music, and, you know, uh, the population. What's the dynamic like in Trinidad before you actually came on this side? Yes, 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 yes. You you want to hear the good and the bad? <laughs> Whatever you feel comfortable it's, in telling us. Yeah. Ugly. Okay, so the good. What I love about Trinidad, we are a very, of the Caribbean islands, I think one of the things that stands out for me is our culture. Right. Like we have a a cosmopolitan culture of people in Trinidad. And so I would say demographically, like about roughly, this is just rough statistics, like a third of the population are of African descent, a third of the population are of East Indian descent, and a large percentage of the population is mixed um, and mixed meaning, you know, black and Indian, black and Chinese black and white, like just, just, just a hot black and Spanish, you know, type thing. And so there's, there's a large percentage of the population that's mixed. There's a small percentage of the population that me, that might be white or Chinese. Um, But that, 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 those are the two biggest demographics. And because of that, our food is so amazing. I have yet to meet, and I am very biased, and I'm married to a Jamaican, but I have yet to meet another island that could top Trinidad in food. Like, if it's one thing, yes, girl, if it's one thing that we win on is food. <laughs> because when I went to Jamaica, I was like, rice and peas every day? Like, y'all don't have any variation besides rice and peas? <laughs> and I... Yeah, we have the yams, we have the cassava. Yes. We but have, it's like know, every day though. No, blame your husband. Blame your husband. He's the one who did it. He did. He did. But but what I love about Trinidad is that we have that in Indian, the Indian part of our culture got Caribbeanized, right? So our Indian food is not like East Indian food that you would find like in an Indian restaurant up here. 
it's more like Caribbean Indian food. So it's a bit different. And so that's like one aspect of our, our food cuisine. It's like we have a lot of roti and curry and, you know, so, so that's, I love, I love, and I, that's one of my favorite foods is like roti. And when we eat roti, we eat it with a lot of sides, like curry chickpeas, curry potato, chicken, stewed chicken, curry chicken, curry goat, like whatever, whatever we could curry, we will put it on the plate. And, and then on the, on the Afro-Caribbean side, I think we, we have a lot of nice foods like Kalaloo. Our Kalaloo is very different from Jamaica Kalaloo. Um, we have Kalaloo and, and all sorts of beans. Like we do split peas, red beans, pigeon peas. We have all the, all the beans we, we do something with. And, you know, we have the street food that's nice. Like, and part of the street food is, is Indian based, like pilori, doubles. Those, those tend to kind of fall under bacon the Indian. Shark, bacon shark. <laughs> yes. And bacon shark. You know, so there's a lot of nice, um, nice food. I mean, when I when I go back home, I go back home to eat. I go back home to eat everything that I cannot get in America. <laughs> you know, and um, we one of my favorite snacks as a child was this. Um, uh, it's called chow, and chow is basically taking half ripe fruit, like half ripe mango, and cutting it up and seasoning it with salt and pepper and garlic and cilantro and kind of like mixing it up and I remember my husband saying like oh my gosh y'all put pepper in everything like why do y'all put like in the fruit he's like in the fruit leave the fruit alone y'all put pepper in the fruit (laughs) and it's true it's like we really do put pepper in everything you know down to the fruits (laughs) we will cut it up and put pepper in it so we are a little we are a little on the more spicy side when it comes to like our foods and cuisine and stuff like that and but I love it I love I love the diversity of the food groups that we have and so that's that's one thing that's nice and of course you know that one of the things culturally that's part of Trinidad is carnival and soca music calypso music and that's just like the heartbeat of 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 the culture of Trinidad is is having that music, you know, so I grew, grew up listening to, you, you cannot not hear soca music, you know, it's just like, you hear it on the radios, you hear it everywhere, you hear it, you know, playing in stores or in, in taxis and in buses, like it's, it's all over. And so, but believe it, you said you wanted to go to carnival and I'm like, me too. Like, I want to go to carnival too, because when I was little, when I was a child growing up, I remember watching carnival, but never being allowed to play carnival. And so I remember kind of like just standing in the streets and watching the parades and watching the pretty costumes and stuff like that. And then by the time I became a teenager, the church that I was a part of, we would go to youth camp during carnival because that was the church's way of keeping us safe during carnival and protecting us from (laughs) from the revelry that they would say so my entire teenage into young adult until I left Trinidad I never like actually saw carnival again because I was away on the youth camp and so I would love to go back and experience carnival as an adult and see it with adult eyes because I I don't have that experience. Because once I left Trinidad, because carnival is either February or early March, 
I that is the most inconvenient time to go back home because you only have Christmas and summer breaks when you're in school. And so it takes a lot of preparation now as a, a working adult to coordinate carnival, but it's on my bucket list for 2024. <laughs> experience it's funny because when you're local to the island people a lot of people don't understand there's some people where you're like you live on an island and you don't know how to swim like I actually took swim classes officially when I came to the U.S. we would go to the beach and we do our thing and we enjoy we go to the rivers or whatever but we were actually kind of forbidden as well my dad is not religious family not religious really but we just, it wasn't just not a thing. They saw it as a, a, a adult thing, revelry and, you know, and so they kind of kept us outside of that space, even though it just looked so fun with all the costumes on TV. And I literally went back in 2013 because I was like, I just was so curious and I just wanted to dr- get dressed up in a costume and just enjoy it. I did the whole juvet thing. I, you know, the whole late night and going down the street and it was so much fun. And I've heard of Trinidad and, you know, I'd have to discuss with my husband. I was like, just let's go as adults. Yeah. Let's just do it together. So we should plan me, you and your husband and my yeah. husband. Let's all go back and just enjoy it. We are adults. We're not going to do anything that is kind exactly. of crazy, you know, slumbering around the street. But exactly. Just, it's a beautiful culture and it's part of our, our birth country. So why not experience it? Yes. We're going to do that. So we can talk, keep talking about having that conversation and winning my husband over. <laughs> yes. Yes. And my gosh, but I don't want to stop you. But Trinidad, you know, Caribbean culture is just so colorful and, you know, the sun just keeps us going, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like you say, you know, it's interesting because I also didn't grow up like going to the beach regularly. The My, my father, I think he had a fear of the beach. And so he didn't take me to the beach or allow me to go to the beach. And it wasn't until I became like, maybe like 15, 16 was when I would go to the beach with the youth group. Like that was my introduction to going to the beach, right? Because I... I think he had a fear of drowning or fear of something bad happening. And so it's interesting, right? Because you live on an island, but that does not necessarily mean (laughs) that you are always at the beach or always, you know, swimming or doing island things, you know, because it really depends on your family, I think, of what you are allowed to do or what you have access to or, or so beach was not actually a normal part of, of my growing up, but I love the beach now like as an adult I will go out of my way to find a good beach or to find a good beach when I travel you know it's like because it's almost like I feel like I missed out like I missed out on having that you know access to 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 water and to to the sand and to the sea and stuff like that but so I actually absolutely love love going to the beach and it was one of the reasons why I was drawn to Miami as well because I was like oh I could be like a 20, 30 minute drive to the beach as opposed to hours and hours away, (laughs) like how we are now. You know, if we want to go to the beach now, we have to like plan a whole like vacation in order to go to the beach, you know. And so I miss the beach, but it's not because I grew up with the beach, you know, it's because I missed out on the beach. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah, I totally get that. I totally get that. Water is so important to me. I find I need to have it. Even if it's a water fountain, I need to live next to a river. 
something yeah. just water it's just something about how your auto pilot is set as a child growing up like the sun is important it's beautiful and bright outside and once I wake up in the morning and that's on that's all I need to be happy sunlight I get it gets me going I'm motivated and water two important things so and nature and so forth so oh yes I, I miss it I miss it we will see how life works out for us to be more on the island <laughs> Yes, yes. I wonder over the years, Kara, like, you know, how have you adjusted to some of the challenges that comes with, you know, you worked out the whole study and educational opportunities and, um, but how have you worked out the change in culture, like Trinidad, the Caribbean and the the American culture and how nuanced some things are decoding people's behavior, the workspace and all of that. Like, how did you manage some of those challenges? No, it was definitely a challenge when I first came to the U.S., like more of a challenge, right? Because I think the culture shock was the first thing that I noticed of how different, how different it was. And so it took me a while just to even feel settled in America. And it wasn't until we moved till I moved to North Carolina and maybe two years into living in North Carolina. So this is now year five of being in America that I felt settled. Like I felt settled enough to relax, to to say, okay, this is my first home. It was my first home with my husband, but it didn't necessarily mean I felt at home, if you know what I mean. Um, and so living in America can definitely it, it's it's a it's a torn feeling because it's like it's not home, but it is kind of home, but it's not really home. So so it's it's that unsettled feeling that you have for quite a while. And I remember and because I went to an HBCU, remember I said before, I didn't even know what an HBCU was. And for those of you who don't know what it is, it's a historically black college or university. So most of the students who are in that college or university are African-American. So the culture that I was exposed to in the first three years of being in the U.S. was the African-American culture. So I wasn't even exposed to the wider culture. And as a matter of fact, I did not realize until years later how much of a bubble I was in, in terms of like an American bubble, like coming to coming to America, but still being in a bubble because I'm only in this like African-American culture, a bubble. And then the church that I went to was like an African-American church. And so I'm like with these people in this African-American bubble and Think about it. Like, then you start to think this is America, right? Like, this is the American culture and not realizing that there are many different aspects to the American culture. So when I came to the U.S. it and being part of the American, the African-American culture, that was like actually my first time learning U.S. Black history and learning about the different segregation and racism and all the things like I didn't have um, an intellectual understanding of that coming from Trinidad right because we didn't learn um, African-American history in, in our in our subjects we learned Caribbean history but we didn't learn and I didn't learn African-American history or world history that wasn't one of my subjects so I learned a lot in those first three years of just the African-American culture and learning about racism. And I remember the first time I went to, it was, it was a, it, I was working as like a student counselor at a camp for, for teenage kids 
who were transitioning to high school. And as part of this camp, we were taking them on outings every week. And one of the outings that they went to was to the MLK Museum in Atlanta. And Mm -hmm. I remember for the first time, like standing in that museum and just seeing they had like the videos playing of, you know, the 60s when, you know, the police would have like dogs, you know, just out, you know, to to attack the people and all the things. And I just remember standing in that space and feeling like, oh, my God, like while my country was gaining independence in 1962, America they they were not experiencing what we were experiencing in our country right they were they were experiencing something very very different and i just remember standing in there feeling so emotional looking at the videos looking at the pictures and just being like wow like how crazy it is that we were in the caribbean kind of sheltered from that and we didn't have like those experiences of you know, police brutality or racism or even systemic laws that literally try to give you a less than education or put you in a school that that didn't have resources. Like we didn't have that. And so I think that was my biggest challenge in terms of coming to America was like understanding that we may be part of like the black diaspora, right? Like black in the world, Right. And like we all kind of came from, you know, somewhere in Africa and and, you know, through slavery, settled in all the different islands. But our experience with racism in the Caribbean is very different, um, very, very different than than what people's parents, aunties, grandparents Mm -hmm. experience. Right. And I think like I had to learn to understand that. And I had to learn to get an appreciation for that because in the beginning, I remember us international students being very judgmental about the African-American students, almost like, you know, like, why can't they get their act together? Like, like, why can't they do this or do that? Because we didn't understand, right? Like we're coming from a context of like, you are black in your country and you see black leaders, you see black leadership, you see black prime ministers, black, you know, everything, right? Doctors, all the things. And we don't know how that then translates into our like confidence and our ability to like take up space and all of those things. And so I think it took a number of years before I started to realize or understand the nuance of that culture and even appreciate it. You know, it took a number of years before I could appreciate it. And once I did, <laughs> you know, once I did, and once I, I, and that was just the African-American culture. So then fast forward now, I'm in North Carolina. I'm still sheltered because I'm still going to a black church. I'm working for a very small company, you know, 20 people. So that's not very big. So my world is still small, right? Like my world is still primarily African-American culture and for the next seven years. So three plus seven, 10 years, I would consider myself to be in the American, like the African-American bubble. Then I go in in 2013, we go to Tallahassee, which now is a very different cultural environment. I am no longer in a black church. I am in a mixed church. And that's the first time that I started to feel different and notice 
being treated differently because I took for granted that I was welcomed in into the African-American community. So when whenever I'm in a space with other African-Americans, it's like they bring you in, they invite you for dinner, they want to know about you, they want to know about your culture, they want, they have all these questions and it's a very inviting feeling to feel, to be included, right? And then I I go the other side and I I, I don't have that experience. I'm not invited I'm not asked about myself. I'm not asked about my culture. And it's like, this is different. And this is church, mind you, right? This is where you would expect to feel welcome is in church. And that was when I was no longer in the bubble. And I started to see, oh my goodness, like it's a whole different world out here. It's a whole different world. And I think that's when I became personally more aware of the race dynamics, like, because I was seeing it, I was feeling it. I was not in a bubble anymore. I was no longer sheltered by my HBCU. I was no longer sheltered by the Black church community. And I was out there and I felt like I was out there by myself from 20, this is now 2013 when we moved to Tallahassee to about 2018 until we came to Atlanta. So from 2013 to, tw- and then, you know, during that time span, oh my gosh, all sorts of things happening, race relations wise, and, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests and all of those things, you know, start. But I remember struggling particularly with the predominantly white churches. Like that was my particular struggle was like feeling different in a space where I thought I thought you know I would be welcomed in um and and just feeling unseen in that space for a long time and so that that has been my major struggle with being in America is like understanding the race relations and how it actually impacts real relationships and really not being able to find connection um deep intimate connection outside of the black community right and so it 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 that was shocking to me because i think coming from trinidad and and almost like we didn't have that race relations um experience so we tend to come a little bit more open minded and more inclusive to be like we could be friends with anybody red or yellow black or white right we'll be friends with the asian the the white people all the people right and then you start to realize oh but they may not want to be friends with you. (laughs) And I didn't know that. I did not know that until like 10 years later, because I was in this bubble where I was welcomed. I was in a bubble where I was welcome. I was pulled in. I was seen. I was asked to participate in X, Y, Z, you know, and then I go into this other bubble and I'm like, nobody sees me. Nobody like, you know, or they see you, but they just kind of see you on a very superficial, very surface level. And that that for me was a, a rude awakening. And then I think my my breaking point was in 2016 when he who shall not be named was elected. And I felt I, I think that was the most hurt that I actually felt it being in America because I actually felt sad that people were willing to overlook racism, 
bigotry. They were willing to overlook um, xenophobia. They were willing to overlook like all of these things. And then that sealed the deal for me because I was like, then we are overlooked. So my family is overlooked. My husband is overlooked. My black child is overlooked. Like that for me was like a stake in my heart because it was especially tied to the church and and uh, and the the whole white black differences in the church it was like ah it's real like it wasn't like theory bef- like and you know sometimes you can rationalize and be like mm, let's give them the benefit of the doubt you know like let's you know um but then it was like no it's real and i think the reality of it being real like i felt it in my core like in my core, core, core. And I felt really sad and I felt really hurt because I really came, I think, in trying to like, but I we we accept everybody, we're everybody's friends. And and then you realize, no, Kara, everybody is not your friend, right? <laughs> everybody is not your friend. You might want to be friends with everybody, but everybody doesn't want to be friends with you. And it's like that little girl on the playground that's like sad because the other girls don't want to play with them. And that's how I felt. Like I was like, wow. Like, this is what it's like to live in America. And what I also learned was that as a result of that, as a result of, especially when you realize it, right, you almost feel like you have to hide parts of yourself to then show up in those mixed environments or those workspaces that are mixed or, um, any type of space where 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 there where you're not in that bubble <laughs> you're not in that little safe safe bubble i realize that part of part of being in america part of being black in america part of being um us immigrants being in america is that we have to assimilate in a way that i don't think we even think about or we have really words for beforehand of like what that means or what that looks like or what that feels like but essentially what it feels like is that you can't be your full self you can't be your true self you can't you know you you have to make sure that you are the cross your t's dot your i's that you are you know presenting the best version of yourself but what that does is that it almost dehumanizes you and it doesn't make you fully human because you don't get to like just just be and i i then realized this is why hbcus exist so you know it it all came full circle right because i went in not knowing what an hbcu was and to be honest the whole 3 years i was there i still didn't get it right because i'm still new to america i don't really understand the whole racism history i didn't get a history class you know in the caribbean to even explain it to me so i still didn't get it until like 2016, it came full circle. And I was like, oh, it's a safe space. That's what it is. It's a safe space to learn. It's a safe space to be seen. It's a safe space where you where where Black people don't have to minimize themselves or reduce themselves to whatever is like acceptable to mainstream society. And they could just be. And I was like, oh. Now it makes sense. Like, but it took me like 15 years, I feel like, to figure it out and to figure out like there was a reason why there's a Black History Month. Cause I didn't understand why is there a Black History Month? Like, why isn't just history? You know, like, why isn't there like it's all history? Like, why does it have to be Black history? And then I'm like, oh, because without Black history, their stories won't be told. 
you know, and I didn't know that because that's not how we grew up. Right. And I think, I think we talk about slavery and racism very differently in the Caribbean, but not from an experiential perspective. You know, it's kind of like those people <laughs> over there who did X, Y, Z, who no longer live here, <laughs> you know, did the bad thing. And in America, for a lot of black people, it's not those people, it's your neighbors. It's the people who you thought were your friends. It's your church family. And then it's like, whoa, that's that's a whole different experience that I did not, I was not prepared for. Like that's the part of America that I was not prepared for because I didn't, I didn't really know, I didn't really have that cultural or or um what's the word like I, I wasn't privy I guess you know to to that type of what that meant in a real real way until living here and my husband even as a as a doctor you know he would go into and he's he's had more direct experiences with um with people kind of looking down on him you know i remember one time in tallahassee somebody called and you know to their child he's a child psychiatrist so a lot of times he's dealing with the parents of the children that he's taking care of and he's in the hospital and the parent call and the parent is like i would like to speak to someone else they put him they gave it the phone to the nurse and she said is that a black doctor i would like someone else and uh, and this is now you know like this is not 1962 and so you know and and you know he he, he have stories of like you know he would see one time he, he saw one of his patients and it was like you know and he was like oh you're a half breed and i was like what does that even mean like what what is going on here and so he's had, you know, and especially being in medicine, almost like the assumption that you are a lower quality doctor because you're black, you know? And so we would like to speak to the real doctor, please. Right. The, 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 the other, the, the, the qualified one. Um, and those things are real. And those are not things that our Caribbean, um, our Caribbean upbringing remotely prepared us for right because those are not conversations that really exist because your doctors are black the lawyer is black the nurse is black everybody right like you see yourself in everybody and so that's the difference with being in america is that um the way you see yourself is not the way other people see you and that's and then when you when you experience it then it's like yikes that that's a little dag that that hurt you know and and he's and he he can tell you more experiences that he has had just throughout his educational career of assumptions right like of assumptions that people have made um from getting into medical school to all the things right like even when he was applying to when he when he was talking to his advisor and saying that he wanted to go to a medical school he his advisor said you should consider applying to the medical schools outside of the US so that you could get in right because the assumption was is that you're not going to get in 
you're not going to get into a U.S. medical school. So so apply to those other schools where, you know, their scores are lower so you can get into those schools. And that's the that's that's when you experience that, then you're like, oh, that's when you realize how they see you is not how you see you. Right. Um, And so, you know, and that was from undergrad that that he had had those those experiences and it 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 went all the way through medical school um you know and and those are the things that you kind of have to deal with and and be mindful of of when you come to America right like be mindful of like you don't get to escape those things because you are from the Caribbean my gosh or from somewhere else or from some another country you know yeah once you end up here in this country, there's a there's such a tangible anti-blackness that exists here. And I think it bleeds through the media to other countries based on how we are represented in the media, in movies, in Hollywood, and so forth. And this is why African Americans are constantly saying that racism is baked into the system here. Yes, yes. And I get it. I mean, you could have, I was sitting in your chair, everything you just said, the religious experience, you go to church. I just released a story um, by this lady, Rosa Bell, who was basically talking about how her son was in this mixed church. She's from Panama and she's married to an African-American gentleman who uh, is uh, was in the military and how her son was bullied by uh, Caucasian folks. And was called names based on how he walked and how he spoke. And he was in the church that you would be considered a safe place. And it's so sad. They say church is the most segregated place in this country on Sunday mornings. And it is. And be aware when you come here, because if the real history, the real authentic history of really what happens here in this country is being, people are putting stuff on paper for it, preventing it from being taught in schools. Yeah. Then it's not going to be taught outside of the borders of this country. So we won't know anything. And you're coming in very blind, not knowing like really what you're getting into. And it does take a few years for you to actually say like, for it to click. This is what they're talking about when you finally feel it in your skin. Like you, yes. you know, it, it's part of, you just have the emotional response to the microaggression to how, you know, how people view you. You could be confident and strong, uh, you know, that confidence that comes from a, a first-generation immigrant because you were raised in your birth country and you come very confident about who you are and you will work hard and put in whatever you need to do. But then you realize this is what racism is. A person who has the power, it's based on how they see you, will now affect where you go, what you do, how you show up, based on how their interaction with you. So this is what they mean when they talk about racism. And on a very personal level, that's how it plays out. And so you just verbalized it so perfectly because a lot of us don't even have the language or the words to express what we're experiencing. It yeah. took me a while to figure it out. Yeah. And you could end up asking yourself if something's wrong with you because you feel a way, but you don't really know or understand why. And then you're like, is it me? Like, you know, like, is it like, am I doing something wrong? Like, is it because like, you know, you, you, you tend to think of like yourself sometimes as, as the reason why other people are reacting the way, not realizing like, oh no, this is, it's, it's baked. It's baked into the system. So it's very seductive and not very noticeable. 
you know it's not it's not it's not like back in the day where people are wearing hoods and burning crosses and it's very obvious right like that would be very obvious you know it's it's just in the interactions you know and you know people experience it in the workplace too right like being passed up for promotions being overlooked having having senior people less qualified than them being their supervisor you know those types of things happen all the time and you know it it's part of the it's part of the, the 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 fabric i think of america like it's just the hidden fabric in america that people don't talk about and then when african americans say they get labeled and you know they're being they're called race baiters they're called this they're called that but because their voices have been constantly like you know just not heard and it's not being addressed and and they have to live here. I mean, like, where are they going to go to call home? This is, for generations now, this is what they know as home. Because, you know, they have yeah. children and children and children. This is all they know. They can't just leave. We have the luxury of being able to go back home where we were born, where we have family, property, and roots. But they can't leave. They have to still deal with the people and see the people who were in positions of power who continue even after slavery. Yes. In 2023, continue to perpetrate some of these same behaviors. And so they're not even able to heal from the trauma. They're constantly just being rewounded day after day. And no matter how hard they work and do their, get their education and achieve, it follows them around. Yeah. And it's sad. And then we come in and being told that you are labeled based on your skin color. It doesn't matter anything else about you, whether you're qualified or not it comes down to skin color. That is mad. It's such a crazy, a crazy, like mentally to kind of put your mind around. It's just like, and then, you know, my experience has been lately having a daughter who's now five and over the last five years being here in the South and her going to school and noticing how from so young, these people teach their children to behave a certain way with your children. Right. Because my daughter would come home and she'll start asking questions. And recently it just broke my heart because she said, mommy, she looked at her baby pictures and she was very pale. And she said, mommy, I want to be this color again. She was five and it broke my heart. Wow. That is sad. It broke my heart. I'm like, I I didn't have to deal with that when I was her age. I had a three. I had a luxury to go all the way through high school and not have to deal with that. Yeah. And our children yeah. having to deal with this being forced in there from other children. Yes, that's the thing. And less than five. So they teach their kids this young to be racist. So I mean, sad. like, this is on another level. So you better know when you make a decision to come here as a person of African descent or a person of color, you better know what you're getting into, okay? Join us next time for part three of this episode. Friends, as always, please subscribe, comment, and share if you enjoyed this interview. If you're passionate about telling immigrant stories, our team is looking for help. If you're willing to help with podcast production, social media, or Patreon management, please reach out to us. You can also donate on our Patreon if it's easier for you. All the links are in the description below. Thank you. 
We thank our listeners around the world and we appreciate your continued support as we build our human library. Please remember to give us a five-star review, subscribe and share with your friends, family and circle of influence.